0: Well, good morning again, and welcome to Grace Bible Church. Uh, there have been a handful of Sundays where I have felt a bit like a one man one man band. Uh, this being one of them, I mean, we have been blessed over these last few years to have Phil and others step up and help me lead in worship, and I am so thankful. And I it's those these days that I end up doing all these things that I. more even more thankful and realize how much how much we've been blessed to have men like Phil and others to step up and help I hope you were encouraged this morning I hope you're encouraged in the Lord and are trusting uh, in him during these trying times Um, I am truly I've mentioned it a couple of times now I am truly grieved for our nation with so much happening Uh, the COVID-19 situation to the unrest in our cities now more than ever. We need to be praying for our nation. Uh, I brought it up, Mark and Natalie, earlier about, I think, your nephew in Chicago. And so we need to be praying for him and for uh, all of those who are on the front lines dealing with these riots uh, right now. And just pray for safety and pray for cooler heads to prevail. Well, let's go to the Lord right now in prayer as we prepare our hearts to receive the preaching of the word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you have sovereignly saved us, at least those who know you here today. Father, I just want to pray for our nation, pray for our leaders, pray for our president, for all those in leadership positions. I pray that cooler heads would prevail. I especially want to pray this morning for those who are in harm's way, Lord, I pray for, particularly this morning for Mark's nephew in Chicago, pray that you would have, a, lay a sovereign hand of protection on him, Lord, but you would use him to bring peace, true, peace That peace that, um, that only men can, the, the peace of men that is, but Lord, we look forward to true peace, the peace that only you can bring. The peace that you have brought through redeeming the world to yourself through your Son. The peace of the Gospel. Peace that only can come through a knowledge of victory over sin and death. Father, may we look to you who provides every good thing. Father, may you lay your hand of protection on us. for we know that your wrath can come in the form of withdrawing your hand. Lord, I pray as we watch what's going on in this world, Lord, I pray that you would lay your hand of blessing upon us. Lord, I pray for our nation that we would repent. I pray that we would look to you that all these sinful things that we're doing, including killing our babies, that we would repent of them and turn from them. Lord, we know that You are righteous and that You will bring justice. Father, may we be a people who love, who love justice. who love mercy, and who walk humbly with You, especially Your church, even this morning. In Christ's name, Amen. Let me read, as we return to our study this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. Let me read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul, the apostle, writes, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. At the end of the movie Chariots of Fire, the following words flash up on the screen. It simply says, Eric Little, missionary, died and occupied China at the end of World War II. All of Scotland mourned. <coughs> <coughs> Most of you know that Eric Little was a Christian who also happened to be a very fast runner. Perhaps he is best known for refusing to run the one hundred meter race in the nineteen twenty four Paris Olympics, a race he was actually favored to win. You see, the qualifying heat for the race was on a Sunday, the lord's day, a day which he believed that the that God did not want him to run he went on after that he went on to win gold the in the paris olympics in the 400 meters breaking the world record in the process amazingly the 400 was not his strongest race now after the fame of the olympics eric went on to become a missionary in china where he had been born to missionaries he went on to be a missionary there himself during the Japanese occupation, uh, the, this area became, the area in China he was at, became dangerous for his family. So he sent his pregnant wife and his two daughters back to Canada. The Japanese, afterward, placed him in a prison camp, a filthy prison camp without working toilets and running water. So we're talking about a man who was an Olympian, who is well-known in the sports world, who became a missionary, who has now been thrown into a prison camp that is without running water and working toilets. Eric died in that camp several years later at the age of 43. The whole world mourned the loss of this godly man who gave his life for the sake of Christ. To many, this may have seemed like a huge waste. Couldn't Eric have used his fame in great ways for the cause of Christ? and not had to go to be a missionary. He could, have, he could have been the face of the missionary movement without ever putting himself into harm's way. Yet he chose to become a missionary, which led to him living what people would have considered a wasted life in this prison camp. Yet it was in that place that God used him for some of his greatest work. In the camp, he became known as Uncle Eric to many of the children who were held there with him. Now, think about that. We're talking about a prison camp with children, with, with which he became, or to which he became Uncle Eric. Now, there happened to be a 13 year old named Margaret, who was imprisoned by the Japanese there with Uncle Eric. She remained at that camp and separated from her parents for six years. Now, here is a story about Eric Little, in the words of Randy Alcorn, who met Margaret as an older woman many years later. It says this Margaret shared with us a story that illustrated Eric Little's Christ like character. In the camp, the children played basketball, rounders, and hockey, and Eric was their referee. Not surprisingly, he refused to referee on Sundays. But in his absence, the children fought. Little struggled over this. He believed that he shouldn't stop the children from playing because they needed the diversion in the camp. Finally, Little decided to referee on Sundays. This made a deep impression on Margaret. She saw an athlete world famous for sacrificing success for a principal that he was not a legalist in doing so. When it came to his own glory, Little would surrender all of it rather than run on Sunday. But when it came to the good of of some children in a prison camp, he would actually referee on Sunday. Little would sacrifice a gold medal for himself in the name of truth, but would bend over backwards for others in the name of grace. Now, I dare say that it's Eric Little's great humility, not his athletic prowess, that endeared him to so many people. In our day of chest-thumping athletes, it's hard to fathom a man who competed at the highest level of sports would also, would also exhibit humility. By all accounts, Little ran solely for the glory of God. This truth was captured by the most famous line in the film Chariots of Fire. He says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel His pleasure. You may remember that line. God did make Eric Little fast, and He ran for God's glory. But those were not Eric Eric Little's words they were written specifically for the movie what eric little actually did say and more than once was that god actually made him for china more specifically god made him to die in china instead of gracing the front of sports magazines or a wheaties box The famous athlete, this famous athlete would follow his Savior by dying a horrible and, and yes, humiliating death in a prison camp. Well, we find ourselves this morning returning to our study in the book of Ephesians. We pick up this morning in chapter 4. Last week we studied chapter 4, verse 1, which I said last week, or which we said last week, is Paul's theme verse for the rest of the letter. Let me read that theme, that proposition. Based on all, it's in your bulletin, based on all that he has taught in chapters 1 through 3, Paul encourages the church at Ephesus to walk worthy of their calling for the purpose of unity within the body of Christ. He gives three crucial characteristics of this worthy walk, and we'll see them this morning. You must first personify humility and gentleness. Second, you must Practice patience and forbearance. And third, you must preserve unity and peace. Now, last week we began, as I said, by studying verse 1, which states, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, before we look at the first characteristic of this worthy walk, I want to take a few moments to review last week's sermon. Notice that verse 1 starts with, Therefore... This word signals that what Paul is about to say is based upon all that he has said up until that point. He has taught them the glorious nature of their salvation in Christ. He has taught them how they were dead in their trespasses and sins, yet in His great mercy, God has made them alive in Christ. He has shown them that Christ has triumphed over sin and death and has been victoriously raised up above all rulers and authorities. He has shown them how God has placed them, Jew and Gentile, into the body of Christ, the church, and is building them up into a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. He has declared to them, and He declares to the entire church that you are now new creations in Christ, that you are a new man. He's revealed to them that God is working through the church to redeem the world through the message of the gospel oh how we need that today don't we we need people to understand what God is doing that God is working through the message of the gospel that he's using the church to redeem the world to himself he's also declared to them that the gospel is the victory proclamation that Christ has defeated sin and death at the cross now, considering the triumph of Christ through the church, it is crucial to recognize that Paul is at this point in prison. He's been in prison for five years as he pens this letter. And despite this, Paul calls the, the church to the worthy walk, which is a life that matches the glorious, weighty nature of Christ's victory over sin. <coughs> over sin and death he calls them to a walk which is worthy of the glorious nature of their calling beloved it is here's what i want you to understand it is the god of the universe who has called us to himself you have been made according to what paul the truth of what paul has taught in chapters 1 through 3 3 you have been made firstborn kings or sons of the king therefore it should come as no surprise that God calls us to live in a manner worthy of this high calling. At this point, starting in verse 2, Paul begins to teach the church how we should live considering our calling. And paradoxically, paradoxically, we find out that our high calling, our high calling mandates a lowly walk. Our high calling mandates a lowly walk, a walk which our Lord personified in going to the cross. Dying a, a, a humiliating death on the cross and that, are, uh, that that the apostle Paul also practiced. Let's look at the first characteristic of this worthy walk. You must personify humility and gentleness. Look at your text. Paul writes that you should walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility. With all humility. You see, the worthy walk begins with humility. This prepositional phrase contains two nouns in the Greek text, both of which deserve much contemplation. I am persuaded, beloved that the more that we study the the implication of these words, the more that we study the implication of this phrase, with all humility and gentleness, the more we will see that we fall truly fall short. The first word is translated humility. The true meaning of this word is incredibly elusive. The, The moment you begin to believe that you know what it means to be humble, most likely you have become proud in your own estimation. Yes, you can be proud to be humble. And yes, that is not humility. It's crucial to realize that this word didn't appear before New Testament times, yet it occurs seven times in the New Testament. This shouldn't come as a surprise to us, because in in and of, our, of ourselves, human beings don't consider humility a virtue. The concept of humility comes directly from God. The sense of this word conveys the, the disposition of value, valuing and, or assessing oneself appropriately, especially in light of this, of, of our sinfulness and the fact that we have been created by God and that we owe everything to Him. We have nothing outside of Him Now, I think the best way for us to understand humility is for us to see what it is contrasted with. In Philippians 2 3, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. What Paul does here is that he contrasts selfishness and vainglorious boasting with humility. He says the the antidote for the ills of selfishness, self-centeredness, and boasting is to regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now this fits with our Lord's command to to love one another as ourselves. Beloved, it is incredibly difficult, if not impossible, to love others to this level when we're looking out for our own interest. You cannot love others to the level the Lord commands us to love if you're looking out for your own interest. In 1 Peter 5, 5, Peter says, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble it's interesting here in first peter 5 5 that peter singles out younger men it seems that young men are especially susceptible to pride i can attest beloved as a man who is beginning to cross that threshold from being young to being old pride has been a besetting sin in my younger days notice that What Peter does is he contrasts humility with pride. Pride, which we can define as thinking and presenting yourself or your ideas as being more important than you should. Putting yourself on a pedestal. Putting your own ideas and thoughts on a pedestal. that's, That's pride. Thinking more of yourself than you ought to. That's pride making yourself out to be the hero of every story in every situation. That's pride. That is to be contrasted with humility. But we can't simply think less of our our abilities and less of our talents because that's not humility, right? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less according to cs lewis beloved human pride is divisive let me say that anywhere let me let me say it this way if anywhere there's a lack of unity which is paul's point here paul is calling for a for this church to be unified anywhere there's a lack of unity there is a lack of humility and you can say it in the positive anywhere there is a Anywhere there is divisiveness, there's pride. Perhaps that's the reason Paul leads off the worthy walk with humility. In the words of Harold Honor, the commentator, he says this, It is significant that this virtue is listed first. Paul emphasized unity. We must realize that pride provokes disunity, whereas humility engenders unity. You see, humility is the opposite of pride and arrogance. It is the antithesis of self-centeredness. Perhaps that's the reason our Lord Jesus is the supreme example of humility, right? You can turn there if you'd like, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8. Paul uses the Lord Jesus as the supreme example of humility. He says, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in the appearance as a man, He humbled Himself. He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Beloved, the God of the universe If there's any one who has reason to be exalted, it would be the Lord Jesus. The God of the universe emptied Himself and took on the form of a slave. He was made in the likeness of men and found in the appearance of of a man, the one who deserved our worship. He went to the cross, humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, Jesus, the Son of God, deserved to sit on a throne. Yet He humbled Himself to hang on a tree. He deserved to sit on a throne. Yet He humbled Himself to, sit, to hang on a tree. The God of the universe, our Creator, became a man and died the most humiliating death ever, or ever imaginable. This, my friends... Is the supreme example of humility. (coughs) Beloved, as Christians, we need to have our eyes on Christ and what Christ has accomplished. We need to be have our eyes on Christ and what Christ did on the cross. The victorious Christian, according to A.W. Tozer, neither exalts or downgrades himself. His interests have shifted from self to Christ, and what Christ has accomplished. Brothers and sisters, do you struggle with pride? Please consider these words from C.S. Lewis. He says this, A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And, of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. End quote. Beloved, if you're looking down on people, if you, look, if you think you're better than everybody else and you're looking down on them, you can't put your eyes on the Savior who is above you. In the words of J.C. Ryle, the surest mark of true conversion is humility. The surest mark of true conversion is humility. Jonathan Edwards says this Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. But Paul doesn't stop at that. He doesn't stop at humility. He says, With all humility and patience, or gentleness, that is. Gentleness is this second noun used to describe the worthy walk. This, this word is remarkably sense, similar to humility. You might say, then, that gentleness is the outworking of humility. A truly humble person will behave with gentleness. It has the idea of, of acting in a manner that is gentle, mild, even-tempered. A truly gentle man will not act in unwarranted or excessive anger. A truly gentle man will not run over those around him with his words and actions. However, we must not confuse gentleness with weakness. Actually, actually, you might describe true gentleness as strength under complete control. A weak man cannot be truly gentle. He is simply weak and bends to the prevailing winds. Again, our Lord personifies the idea of strength under control, does He not? He can wipe out all of mankind with His strength, yet in His incarnation He acted with complete gentleness. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus was gentle and humble in heart, yet He was not weak. His strength is illustrated by His display, display of anger toward those who had transformed the temple into a den of thieves. You can read that in Matthew 21, 12, and 13. Moses, Moses, he wasn't weak, was he? Certainly wasn't weak when he came down from the mountain and found Israel sinning against God by worshiping the golden calf. Certainly wasn't weak in that instance. Paul himself, in 1 Corinthians, he asked if they if he want, he asked the Corinthians if they wanted him to come with a rod or in the spirit of gentleness. You see, he wasn't weak, but he displayed gentleness. Therefore, what we have to understand is true gentleness is strength under control. Beloved, we are called to personify humility and gentleness as Christians. We won't do this perfectly, right? You and I, especially I, will fail. But we are called to pursue these traits. We are to flee our natural and fleshly ways, pride and arrogance and anger. These come naturally to us. These come naturally to the fleshly man. You see, humility and gentleness, true humility and gentleness are truly the works of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. Truly the works of the Holy Spirit. Paul is not calling us to something that we can accomplish on our own. Paul is not saying, go and be humble and pay, or, humble and, and gentle knowing that we can do this in and of ourselves. It, doesn't, it, isn't the, it isn't the right thing. It isn't done the right way if we just do it in our own strength. It's something that is uh, wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. This brings us to the second characteristic of the worthy walk. Mm -hmm. Second characteristic, practice. We must practice patience and forbearance. We must practice patience and forbearance. Look back at your text in Ephesians 4. Paul characterizes now the, the, the worthy walk as one of patience. It's best to, to see this characteristic as paralleled in nature to humility and gentleness. The, the word translated patience can be defined as remaining tranquil while awaiting an outcome, or it, or it could be defined as the state of being able to bear up under provocation. It has the sense of patient endurance amid pain and suffering. It could be used for a person's endurance through grief, something that's happened that's caused grief, and they endure through that. For the the believer, patience is that cautious endurance that does not abandon hope in God's working. In James chapter 5, James exhorted those who were suffering. They were suffering under the hand of wicked men. He he, he exhorts them to be patient. In James 5, 7-8, he says this, therefore be patient brethren until what until the coming of the lord the farmer waits for the precious produce of of the soil being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains you too be patient strengthen your hearts for the coming of the lord is near you see paul or paul james here uses the example of of a farmer who plants his field then waits for the rains to bring their harvest he has no control over this all he can do is plant the seed and, and cultivate the ground, but he has no control over when the harvest is going to come or whether it would even come. Yet he's called to be patient. James goes on later after in, in verses 9-11, through 11, he goes on to describe the prophets who suffered for the sake of the Lord as they spoke in the name of the, of, of the, of the Lord. He speaks of them as being patient. Again, this this word goes along with humility and gentleness, but it brings in the idea of a period of time, uh, even a long period of time. Notice that James even brings in the idea of of the Lord's return. We've waited almost 2,000 years, right, for His coming. This patience, this great patience that it takes, especially when you're suffering. James tells us to strengthen our hearts for the coming of the Lord. So... The point is is that you may not get justice on this side of heaven. You may not get justice before His coming, but you're called to be patient and wait. You may recall that Paul prayed that the saints at Ephesus would be strengthened in the inner man. It is this inner strength that helps us bear up in difficult times, to bear up to difficulty, but also for long periods of time. This word along with humility and gentleness does not describe an automatic response in the life of the Christian, but one that demands a conscious effort and reliance on the Holy Spirit. You see, anyone can hold their tongue for a short period of time. Anyone can hold their anger for a short period of time. Most people can withstand a short time of pain and suffering without lashing out. Most people can be wronged for a short period span without having to air their grievances. But it takes true patience, true patience to be wronged and to bear that wrong for months, years, decades, even a lifetime. Brothers and sisters, you could be wronged without it ever ever being righted on this side of heaven. You could be wrong without it ever being righted on this side of heaven. Patience is the ability to suffer for a long time under the mistreatment of others without growing resentful or bitter. And we have to remember, most of us have been shown great patience by others, right? Most of us, can identify with John Wesley, who says this of his mother, Susanna. He says this, I remember hearing my father asking my mother, how could you have the patience to tell that blockhead the same thing 20 times over? She answered, why if I had uh, told him but 19 times, I should have lost all my labor. End quote. I know my parents showed great patience toward me i shudder to think about all that they did and all that they bore under from my actions just think of the parents who have prayed for their wayward children for years never to see them come to christ in their lifetimes yet they do after they are gone but just think of the patience the lord has shown you in your rebellion Paul goes on to describe the worthy walk as one of forbearance look at your text Paul writes with all humility and gentleness with patience showing tolerance for one another in love here we see Paul's main thrust is our relationships with others (coughs) beloved brothers and sisters You can say, we can say, you can say, I can say that, I, that we're godly people, but if we struggle to get along with others, we can't be truly godly. Our relationship with others, especially in the church, is the crucible by which our godliness is tested. The Greek word translated showing tolerance has the idea of enduring something unpleasant. Or difficult for the sake of someone else. In many instances, that something unpleasant might be the person you're dealing with. And oh, by the way, that something unpleasant might be you. Paul calls us to bear with one another. Many times people will do us wrong, many for many, many times and for many years. But those who love Christ will bear with those who wrong them and completely forgive those wrongs. You must remember, most wrongs we suffer will be shortly forgotten, especially if we're willing to forgive. I'm reminded of the feud between the Hatfields and McCoys just after the American Civil War. These two families were intertwined, literally intertwined in the backwoods of Kentucky and West Virginia. They were embroiled in a feud that seemed to be more about honor than about actual wrongs. They found themselves in a battle that, which had no easy end. And the reason it didn't is because no one could keep their honor while forgiving the wrongs that were done. It was all about honor. It, was all, it wasn't as much about the wrongs. It was about not being willing to forgive because it, I, I lose my honor if I forgive. Friends, <clears throat> sadly, this seems to describe many churches. Human pride does not allow us to lay down our arms and bear with one another in love. That goes back to that humility, right? That we have to be humble. We have to be willing to be wronged. We forget that God is the one who has shown true patience to us by withholding His wrath upon us. We should recognize that true believers will differ in many ways. We will differ in many ways. We won't be the same. But sadly, we choose to separate over issues which are not central. Saddens me when a church divides over things such as how we educate our children or even perceived differences in parenting styles. God has shown us how to wisely rear our kids, but there are still many gray areas in how we do it and how we go about it. Yet Christians will divide over it. Some Christians divide over even petty things like what movies they will or won't watch. I remember having a long, this, this literally happened, I had a long, drawn-out discussion over whether I should have watched the movie The Passion of the Christ. I watched it to better understand its issues. I didn't even enjoy it, but I was asked how a true Christian could watch such a movie. It's not loving, is it? It's not loving. The key to all this is that we are to walk in love for one another beloved we are to cultivate our affection for one another we are to have a warm regard for one another this kind of love seeks the highest good for the one we love and for the believer it has the idea of seeking the will of god for the one we love now we must realize as we look at this text that the tension that the tensions that must have existed in the church at Ephesus. Remember, they have Jews and they have Jew- Gentiles, right? They have them, they're coming together, and there was great tension. And what Paul is saying is, is that we need to bear with one another in love. These two groups have been united in one, but there must have been some great tension remaining. Paul calls them to walk in humility and gentleness and patience while forbearing one another in love. John Wesley says this, There's no love of God without patience, and no patience without lowliness and sweetness of spirit. Lowliness is humility, sweetness of spirit, gentleness. He also says this, Humility and patience are the surest proofs, that is, humility and patience are the surest proofs of the increase of love, end quote. Church, the type of humility, or the type of relationships that Paul is talking about, the type of humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance with one another can only be accomplished through the power of the Spirit. Paul called them to unite in this way for the preaching of the gospel. And the gospel could only be preached effectively and only be accomplished by walking in the worthy walk and living a Spirit-filled life. And he goes on to say that later in Ephesians. Beloved, we are called to live a life of humility. We are called to walk in gentleness and to practice patience and forbearance. What about our church? What about Grace Bible Church Gainesville? We're all of different backgrounds. Most of us didn't even know each other more than more than two or three years ago. We're all from different backgrounds. There's differences among us, differences in how we do things. Are you being patient with one another? Or do you expect others to be near perfect while you yourself consider yourself a work in progress? Listen to Thomas Kempis. He says this, Endeavor to be always patient of the faults and imperfections of others. For thou hast many faults and imperfections of thine own that require forbearance. If thou art not able to make thyself that which thou wishest, how canst thou expect to mold another in conformity to thy will? Let me, just, let me give you the translation. The translation is, is that, look, you've got a lot of problems yourself, and you need to be patient with everybody else. How can you expect them how can you expect them to be conformed to your image, what you desire, when you can't even conform your own self to what you want to do? Beloved, we've been, the church, have been called together as one body for the purpose of living out the gospel that we preach. God has called us to unity he has called me and you to walk the worthy walk. He has commanded us to personify humility and gentleness. He has instructed us to practice patience and forbearance. And lastly, he has exhorted us to preserve unity and peace. Look at your Bibles. Don't you like those words? Look at your Bibles. He says this being diligent, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is what Paul has been leading up to for these first two verses. This is what it's taken a one and three quarter sermon for me to get to is that Paul is calling them to be diligent to preserve unity. His overarching desire is to preserve unity in the church at Ephesus because he knows the importance of this church. He knows that they need to be together. He knows what they need to accomplish and they can only accomplish it if they're one. He's not given a suggestion here. As Christians, we are called to do all that we can to preserve unity. It is a command. He says this, being diligent means to be eager, make haste. It it means to make every effort, effort. This is how the NIV actually translates this word. In other words, we are called to be zealous in our efforts to preserve unity. If we do divide over some matter, there must have been some, uh, must have been a zealous effort to preserve unity. Any division that comes, any division can only come after great effort to preserve unity. Beloved, <coughs> excuse me, the church should never be accused of dividing over the color of the carpet. We should only be willing to divide over clear, and I say clear, doctrinal concerns. And then only after great effort to stay unified, this, this word preserve has the idea of keeping and not, not losing, not destroying something we already have. You see, true Christians are unified by the Holy Spirit. You and I are bound together by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we are called to preserve the unity of the Spirit. We are one. We are unified. We're unified by the Holy Spirit that lives within us. We are called to preserve that unity. It's a oneness that we've been given. It's a super na- supernatural gift. When we are saved, we're placed in the body of Christ, and we are supernaturally made into one. We're bound together. Therefore, we're called to preserve that, that which we've been supernaturally given. Beloved, this type of unity that I'm talking about is not forged by human effort. That's a demonic unity. That's a demonic unity. J.C. Ryle says, "Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell." End quote. Brethren, we can't establish true unity in the spirit it's already been given us but we can easily tear it apart it we can rip it apart only god can forge the unity of the spirit but sinful humans can rip and tear it at it seems church we've been supernaturally bonded together and we've been given peace this is the peace which paul says occurred between the jews and the gentiles in the body of christ in chapter 2 if you remember, he says in chapter 2, verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace. He Himself is our peace. He goes on in verse 15. He sa- it says that He, that he uh, has abolished in His flesh the enmity, the hate that was between the two groups, And then He's abolished that in His flesh at the cross that He Himself might make the two into one new new man, thus establishing peace. This is peace that God has established. This is the peace that Christ Himself has established. He abolished the enmity between us in His flesh. He put to death our hate for one another at the cross. Let me give a warning, not that I think that any of you are in this camp, but let me give a warning to those who would create disunity in the church. God opposes you. God opposes you. He hates those who needlessly sow discord in the body of Christ. Listen to the words of John Calvin says this those who disrupt the body of christ and split its unity into schisms are quite excluded from the hope of salvation so long as they remain in dissonance of this a dissonance of this kind end quote brothers and sisters you should think long and hard before you push an agenda which creates disunity within the body of christ let me say that again you should think And let me add the word pray. You should think and pray long and hard before you push an agenda which creates disunity in the body of Christ. Now let me give you a little aside here. The church should be defined by love and unity in Christ. But as you know, this world is full of hate and is defined this world is defined by what separates us tribalism is on the rise it's it's celebrated you must realize that the the news media feeds our differences they feed our differences in politics left or right they feed our differences in how we look especially our skin color they feed our differences in our economic standing they feed our differences as nations nations hate nations right the, the, the Americans hate the Russians the the Chinese don't like us well, they feed this stuff war and destruction are a way of life in the world that we live in contrast the church has been given a supernatural unity we have been given the bo- a bond of peace with peace which can only be broken when we act like the world as you know and as i've mentioned there was a horrific death at the hands of a police officer this past week. George Floyd was apprehended by the police in Minneapolis on suspicion of trying to pass a counterfeit bill. During his arrest, he was physically restrained by the officer. He begged the officer, it's clear on video, he begged the officer to let him up because the way he was restrained was restricting his airflow. He even passed out while the officer continued to restrain him. George Floyd, a black man, later died. The arresting officer, as many of you know, if not all of you know, was white. I truly wish that the United States were a country where the color of these two men didn't matter. I started to say, I I even started to write this, and I'll tell you what I started to write. I want us to be able to read a headline that states, George Floyd... God's image-bearer died at the hands of another of God's image-bearers, but even that is twisted thinking, right? We're so conditioned that death is natural. Our thinking is twisted because we should be horrified by the death and destruction of any image-bearer. No matter what color, no matter what nationality, doesn't matter. We should be horrified by death and destruction of an image bearer of God. Friends, we are all image bearers of God. We are all made in His image. I, I was reading some of this, some of the comments regarding this situation, and as you might expect, uh, most speak about the race and about race and systematic racism. We don't know. I I may get in trouble for this. And that's okay. But we don't truly know that that police officer was motivated by race. We don't know that. Now, we may find out that. It may be proven. But we don't know that today. But we may never truly know his motivation. Beloved, what we have to understand is the heart is deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? I can't imagine another human being being under my knee begging for mercy and me not giving it to him. I don't care what they look like. I don't care who they are. I can't imagine not giving mercy to someone. I said it earlier And I've said it many times, racism is evil. And we must oppose it at every turn. We must resist it when it crops up in our own hearts. We must teach our children and our grandchildren and our grandchildren's children to fight against it. We must teach them the biblical truth that God has created man in His own image and likeness. And that while there are many nations, there's only one race. As Christians, we must carefully discern what we believe about the things that we hear. We can't quickly jump on the bandwagon of public opinion. We must call for justice, but justice must come in a court of law, not in the street. As horrific as it looked on film, a just society will allow justice to work both ways. As Christians, we must show restraint. That includes, beloved, restraint in our own judgment. No one wins in a society that doesn't love justice. Micah 6.8 He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I think the most disturbing thing I heard this week came from a Christian Brothers post. This person basically said, don't tell me that the answer is the gospel. We need to deal with racism in this country. Now, I know there's anger. But I'm here to tell you, the gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope. It's the only hope for you. It's the only hope for me. It's the only hope for our children. It's the only hope for our grandchildren. It's the only hope for this nation. It's the only hope for this world. Now let me circle back to our passage. Beloved, true peace and unity can only come through the Holy Spirit who is given to us through the hearing of the gospel. In the church, we have been given supernatural unity and peace that we are called to diligently preserve. Beloved, our world needs the gospel more than ever now. We need to be, we need to be the, the leading in the gospel. And the only way that you and I can do that is if we are unified. with the unity we've already been given. Right? We've already been given this unity. It's supernaturally given to us by the Holy Spirit. Our world needs a church willing to stand for the truth, to stand up and say what's true and what's right. Our, our world needs a, tr- a church that knows what the Lord requires of us. He knows, knows, a church that knows that the Lord requires us to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. And it needs to start right here. Right here, amongst us. That's Paul's point if we don't have true supernatural unity among us, if we're not walking humbly, if we're not personifying humility and gentleness, if we're not practicing patience and forbearance, if we're not preserving the unity and the peace that we've been given, who will? Who will? My dear Christian, are you walking the worthy walk? Are you a man or woman who personifies humility and gentleness? Or do you personify pride and harshness? Are you a man or woman who practices patience and forbearance? Or do you practice impatience and are you quick to judge others? Are you a man or woman who preserves unity and peace? Or do you tend to spark division and conflict? Beloved, our Lord Jesus went to the cross and bore the wrath of the Father for our sins so that we could have peace with Him. Stop right there. Full stop. You do get that, right? So that we could have peace with Him. But He also did it so that we could have peace with one another. That's Paul's point. He abolished the enmity, right? The hate. Those who would never be together are together. Completely different, but together because of the gospel. He has redeemed us, beloved, from the slave market of sin and has given us supernatural unity with Him and with one another. Let me leave you with a quote, which will begin to set the stage for next week's sermon says this, this is Charles Hodge, The church everywhere is represented as one. It is one body, one family, one fold, one kingdom. It is one because pervaded by one spirit. We are, we're all baptized into one spirit so as to become, says the apostle, one body. End quote. Baptized into one spirit so as to become one body. I hope that you believe it. I hope you live it. I hope you're diligent to preserve it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. and praise you. That you... have given us supernatural unity. May we walk as individuals in humility and gentleness. May we walk as individuals in patience and forbearance. May we preserve as individuals. May we work hard to preserve the unity that we've been given and the peace that we have. Lord, we know that we can rip and tear at the seams of those things. Lord, may we as a people walk humbly with You. In Christ's name, amen.